Hello, my name is Tapio Maseba, and this is the Commercial Awareness Podcast, Episode 62. First, some headlines. In another retail woe, DW Sports, the gym and sports retailer, has entered into administration, putting 1,700 jobs at risk. In more retail woes, but also a potential indication of the future of retail, Dixon's Carphone is to end the employment of 800 store managers, to create a leaner management structure in its stores with a focus on more customer-facing jobs. In law firm updates, Erwin Mitchell has begun redundancy consultations, which puts up to 110 jobs at risk, and Watson, Farley, and Williams have made a number of legal PAs redundant as a result of remote working. In transport and tech, Uber has agreed to acquire UK-based private hire software maker AutoCab to extend its reach across places in the UK where Uber does not operate. In some good news for the automotive sector, new car registrations rose in July by 11% compared to the year before, showing signs of economic recovery, or, my assumption, a potential renaissance of private vehicle use over public transport as a result of the pandemic. And finally, as a result of the government's eat-out-to-help-out food discount scheme, food sales in pubs and restaurants were up 100% compared to the week before, according to restaurant data processing firm CGA. If you'd like to read more on any of these stories, links as always are in the description. This week's structure is two longer reads. The first of the longer reads is that there has been a landmark Supreme Court decision surrounding reflective loss. I know what you might be thinking. What's reflective loss? Before we define that, it's worth our time to set the scene with some foundational principles of company law. I think to begin, let's understand what the corporate veil is and separate legal corporate personality. One of the foundational principles of company law is A company is a separate legal entity from its shareholders. This means that those shareholders enjoy some levels of ownership of a company, an incorporated company is pretty much its own person. There exists what is called a corporate veil between a company and its shareholders, meaning shareholders enjoy limited liability from a company's debts and obligations. That limitation is usually to the nominal value of the shares they own. However, there is give and take to this principle. I just told you some of the give, which is the corporate veil and a company's existence as a separate legal entity, and part of the take is, or at least has been, reflective loss. So, what's reflective loss? Reflective loss is the rule that because a company is its own separate legal entity, when it suffers a loss, only it can bring an action to recover said loss. If we consider that rule in the eyes of a shareholder, this is to say that, if a third party were to do something that results in a company suffering a loss, let it be an owed payment or loss of assets, and that loss results in the company's share price dropping, a shareholder cannot bring a claim for that loss in share price as the price loss is merely a reflection of the company's loss. Therefore, Only the company should have cause to bring an action to recover those losses. Its first appearance is really from Foss and Harbottle in 1843, which established that if a wrong is done to a company, the company should be the plaintiff for any action. 
Then the Prudential case of 1982 specifically mentioned the diminution of the value of shares and that a shareholder's loss in that context is not separate and distinct enough from the losses of a company to allow a shareholder to bring an action against the wrongdoer. But beyond just mentioning case law, it's also worth acknowledging the practical considerations of such a rule. In practice, this also streamlines lawsuits for the court, as it would be tricky to have a list of shareholders with individual claims for wrongdoings done against the company. And with that in mind, it would also be unfair to the defendant if double recovery were permitted, which is to say they should pay out for the same losses to both the company and then the shareholders. It would also be unfair to all the other shareholders if only one shareholder brought an action for their own losses. But having said that, shareholders aren't the only parties who might be interested in a company's success, or better yet, wrongs done to them. And as a result of this, reflective loss has been considered for many years since the Prudential case, and its scope has widened far beyond just shareholders angered by a lower share price. Namely, Johnson v. Gore Wood & Co. in 2002 and Gardner and & Parker in 2004 concluded that reflective loss also applies to all creditors. In the latter case, Lord Newberger also concluded that reflective loss also applied to employees who have lost contributions to their pension funds. In fact, the scope was widening so much, it was considered whether reflective loss should also apply to the creditors of actual people. And this brings us to the case in question, Savalea and Marek's Financial Limited, which was adjudicated upon by the Supreme Court a few weeks ago. To make a long story short, Marix was a creditor for two companies managed by Mr. Savaleha. Those companies owed Marix over $5 million, and Marix sued those companies for the money. The commercial court provided the parties with a confidential draft of the judgment and the decision to award Marix the money owed, plus £1.65 million in costs. The judgment was meant to be formally handed down six days later. However, over those six days, Mr. Savaleha allegedly stripped the companies of their assets, sending the $9.5 million in the company's accounts to personal accounts, such that by the time the judgment was formally handed down, the company's assets only amounted to $4,000, and the debts could not be paid. Soon after, Savaleha placed the companies into liquidation, and as the liquidator had not gained any traction in tracking the funds, Marix brought the suit directly to Mr. Savaleha. Mr. Savaleha claimed that Marix's creditors to the companies were prevented from bringing any actions as a result of the reflective loss, and the only parties able to bring an action against him would have been the companies that he managed or the liquidators. Well, the Supreme Court unanimously disagreed with Savaleha, and in doing so, significantly narrowed reflective loss. Though all seven Supreme Court justices took the side of Marix, there was actually a 4-3 split on just how far the decision should go. The four justices, of course the slight majority, decided to narrow the scope of reflective loss to essentially that original shareholder's diminution of the value of their shares not being separate enough from a company's losses, and as a result, a shareholder still can't bring a claim for such a loss. Other creditors can now bring actions for wrongs done to the company, of course being mindful about double recovery. However, the remaining three took it even further, 
concluding that the Prudential case wasn't actually a rule that all share value diminution is reflective of loss to companies, and that even in this context, shareholders may have cause for action for personal loss. This argument, though technically obiter, may result in even more interesting arguments from claimants in the near future. Regardless, this decision has been welcomed with open arms, providing clarity on when reflective loss does and doesn't apply, and it's assumed that future lower courts will simply follow the majority reasoning of this decision. And with that said, let's talk about it. This whole exercise really reminded me of case note days from first year of LLB. Beautiful full circle moment. But just why does it matter? This decision allows creditors to pursue losses suffered by a company that owes them money. In any context, this is important. But one can imagine that in a pandemic, and in the wake of economic downturn, where a number of parties may be breaching contracts or not paying money when it's due, this ups the ante just a little bit more. It means that creditors may feel a little more emboldened to bring actions against third parties, to recover losses potentially long before any insolvency or administration proceedings. This also deters potential bad actors like Mr. Sevaleha from asset stripping to avoid obligations and debts. But it could equally, in a way, apply even more pressure on directors as they try to weather the storm of this historic economic period. Beyond just angry shareholders, they could now face lawsuits from creditors alleging any impropriety as a result of poor financial results. And who knows, maybe the wording of the obiter argument may even inspire distraught shareholders to try their luck once more to challenge reflective losses' existence. And that might not even be the end of it. This next possible outcome as a result of this decision is a little difficult to illustrate by company A and company B labels. I thought it best to use some companies we have some experience with. So, let's revisit the EasyJet and Sir Stelio saga from episodes 52 and 53. In case you haven't listened to those episodes, I have now left a 40-minute gap in this episode to give you enough time to listen and come back to this one. I'm kidding. A quick summary is, Sir Stelios Hajioanu, the founder of EasyJet and holder of 34% shares of the company, was very unhappy with the company's directors for refusing to cancel a £4.5 billion order for 107 planes from Airbus, all the while securing loans of multiple hundreds of millions of pounds. Sir Stelios alleged that this action would, quote, drive EasyJet into insolvency by December 2020, end quote. As a result, Sir Stelios called for a general meeting where the shareholders had to vote on whether the directors would be relieved of their duties. The majority vote was in favor of the directors, and they remained in their roles, to Sir Stelios's chagrin. To the directors' credit, it's worth mentioning that securing loans to brace for the relatively short-term grounding of planes and lack of liquidity, while looking to the future to have new planes in the pipeline, is a balancing act many companies have had to perform during this period. Furthermore, the order for the planes was all the way back in 2013. One can assume there was no clause accounting for a pandemic, and therefore cancellation was not as straightforward as Sir Stelios may have idealized. And so, in episode 53, 
we then considered what else Sir Stelios could do as a distraught shareholder. And none of the avenues available to him, such as unfair prejudice and derivative action, would have resulted in the ideal outcomes for him in his context. So, does this case change anything for him? Maybe with the Oberter argument. But the decision opens the door for an even more interesting claim coming out of these parties. Imagine if EasyJet's directors had in fact followed Sir Stelios' demand that they cancel the order for the planes from Airbus, and that results in a breach. Also imagine if Airbus had received a loan from a group of banks, also known as a syndicate, to fund the construction of the planes for EasyJet. And now, because EasyJet have breached the contract by not paying for the planes, Airbus default on the loan. Of course, the banks have probably secured the loan against Airbus's assets, but this decision also theoretically leaves the door open for the syndicate of banks to directly bring an action against EasyJet instead, as reflective loss does not prevent them from bringing such a claim. And though theory and practice seldom meet, this still isn't entirely outside the realm of possibility. But, bottom line, in these times of course, and far beyond, reflective loss being clarified is quite significant. Creditors will feel some form of vindication after facing years of uncertainty, and this could actually result in a bit of a litigious wave with creditors seeking to recover their losses with a slightly further reach. And its sector and practice area impact is similarly far-reaching corporate and company law considering reflective loss as a principle, insolvency law as creditors bring claims against parties who have wronged insolvent companies, contract law if creditors seek out parties who have breached contracts, real estate if the creditor is a landlord, banking and finance if the creditor is a bank, and many other sectors depending on the parties involved in each of these matters. And so, this is quite an important legal update, which could have a lot of application in the next few years. How reflective losses dealt with in cases from now on will, hopefully, be a little more straightforward. Credit for this story goes to the Supreme Court, Nicola Guerre, and Rick Brown. For the second and final read, let's talk about a large acquisition in telemedicine and its implications. This past week, the Health Foundation, which is a London-based charity focused on national health, published some findings about the pandemic and its impact on GP availability. As all NHS staff are risk assessed and their activities limited depending on the risk, they found that 8% of GPs are high risk, and for this reason, they could refrain from providing face-to-face -face consultations. As a result, if those high-risk GPs decided to limit face-to-face -face consultations, this could result in over 700,000 patients unable to physically see a GP. And in a way, we all have some anecdotal evidence of that to some degree, considering when the lockdown started, you would have gotten a text message from your local GP advising you against coming to the practice in general. Unless that was just me. So, here we are, a large number of the population potentially unable to visit the GP for the near future. Something's got to give. And the NHS has in some way prepared for this, previously offering the option to call 1112, I guess pre-consult and be advised for next steps, now even taking larger steps in remote video consultations, 
with agreements with 11 remote consultation apps like Livy, eConsult, QDoctor, and so on. But just how lucrative could this business be for years to come? A recent merger gives us a hint, and the answer is quite. This business could be quite lucrative. This is because US-based Teladoc Health has agreed to buy its rival Livongo for $18.5 billion to create the largest virtual care company expected to reach 70 million customers in the US and generate $1.3 billion in revenue this year. Skadden advised Livongo on the acquisition, and Paul Weiss advised Teladoc. So, virtual care is a growing business, especially in the wake of the pandemic, and is expected to continue thriving afterwards for its efficiency. And speaking of efficiency, according to eConsult, 70% of virtual consultations result in there being no need for a physical visit. And this U.S. acquisition shows just how valuable this new age market is, considering the new entity has a near $40 billion market value. And that's all well and good, and we could end it there. But how do we make this story worth our time, and a little more than just a big acquisition in a sector that has seen rising demand during these times? Well, we can read some peer-reviewed medical journals and let people much smarter than me map out the impact of the proliferation of telemedicine and virtual care. From those journals, there are two large concerns that telemedicine and virtual care present. Liability and data and privacy. Since we've covered data breaches and even had a bonus episode called Why Data Matters, let's briefly talk about data and privacy in this context. Of course, these private companies being privy to so much personalized and unique information may result in regulation which requires them to be responsible for any and all breaches. But at what point is it no longer the app developer's responsibility? What if it is a result of poor security on the hospital's end or patient's end? And if these virtual providers go further than consultations, going on to home monitoring of patients with long-term conditions, and automated medicine dispensation devices for someone with diabetes, for example, this too results in a lot of potentially intrusive data gathering as the device keeps note of a person's health around the clock. This may require more unique and potentially multi-jurisdictional data regulation as virtual care progresses. Now, on to liability. Virtual consultations introduce or actually remove some aspects of a physical consultation. This may result in more misdiagnoses. How should virtual care providers safeguard these risks? Further into liability, I'd like to quote a sentence from a journal article if you don't mind, and it's that, quote, A frequently overlooked but ethically and legally crucial fact is that home telehealth turns patients and their significant others into active co-participants in the delivery of healthcare, end quote. As a result of this, does this actually limit the liability of medical providers? Is there more leeway because a patient could fail to give a doctor the correct readings, or forget to take prescribed medication at the right time? Or should it still be down to the healthcare providers to properly instruct and oversee their virtual patients? Further, in the home monitoring device situation, what if a doctor is off duty, but their patient's home monitoring device sends an alert to them? Do they have an obligation to provide care? And does this then result in healthcare providers being expected to be on call 24 hours a day? And hey, even more generally than that, 
does a doctor have any less liability if they were to provide a consultation over Skype or over the regulated NHS app? These are all questions that don't really have to be asked in physical care, but are actually quite pressing for virtual care. And can regulations solely answer all of them? For the UK's part, there is the Medicines and Healthcare Products Regulatory Agency, also known as the MHRA, poised to register and govern these new medical devices and apps. However, some questions can only be answered with experience. Though telehealth has the potential of streamlining medical care and even narrowing margins of error, the last thing you'd think we'd wanted to do is widen the scope of liability for medical negligence, which it so easily could. Lawyers in the medical negligence practice may find themselves with many questions to answer from app developers, product vendors, hospitals, GPs, nurses, and of course, patients about how virtual care changes their legal standing. And so, this mega-acquisition emphasizes the digitization of medicine, catalyzed by the pandemic. However, it also asks questions of legal and ethical considerations of this new technology. And in a way, this is just another page in this age of digitization we're seeing in a lot of fields. E-commerce and its impact on the high street, automation in general, and of course, working from home and what it may mean for office real estate. Now, in medicine, it will be a little difficult to go completely digital. A doctor can video call you and prescribe medicine to get from a pharmacy, but I don't think they can coach you through self-performed surgery. Not just yet, at least. But as the practice becomes more technological, there will be new questions to answer about who is liable and when, and how best to encourage these advancements without opening a Pandora's box of liability for all stakeholders. Credit for this story goes to the SEC, the UK government website, Andrea Downey, James Fontanella Khan, Hortensa Aliaj, and Chase Figer. And for the medical journals, credit goes to Enya Parambelli, Barbara Botalico, Eleonora Losiuk, Marta Tomasi, Amadea Santosuoso, Giordano Lanzola, Silvana Coaglini, Ricardo Bellazzi, Giulio Natari, Raviot Kuman, Simone Baldoni, Graziano Palota, Gopi Batineni, Asiano Sirignano, Francesco Amenta, and Giovanna Ricci. This has been the Commercial Awareness Podcast. Please be sure to follow, subscribe, and rate the podcast on your listening platform. It goes a long way. Also, recommend it to a friend. If you need to contact me, the podcast email address is on the first line of the episode description. And the podcast Instagram page is at ComAwarePod, that is C-O-M-M-A-W-A-R-E-P-O-D, if you prefer to contact me there or just want to follow the podcast there for any updates. The podcast Instagram page is also a way to interact with the podcast where you can participate in polls to reflect on past episodes and suggest topics for future episodes. Other than that, thank you for listening, and you will hear from me next week.